Welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. I'm Anna. And I'm Becca. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. So, Becca, right before this episode, you just finished recording another witchy thing that you're doing. Right. So I mentioned this a couple episodes ago that I was um, I was planning on doing this, and I've actually done the thing, which um, I'm always, you know, pat myself on the back for actually doing something I said that I was going to. Um, <laughs> I have started a YouTube channel. Um, it's called This Magic House, which is based on the blog I've sporadically updated over the past couple of years. Um, but I am, I've been updating the YouTube channel three times a week now. So Sunday nights, I put out a video on the week ahead astrology transits, which is what I was recording right before we started this. And then middle of the week, I do a general tarot reading. And then towards the end of the week, I've been doing uh, reviews, mostly of tarot decks that you carry in your store. So um, Yay. <laughs> little, little cross promotional uh, there. But yeah, so it's called This Magic House. I'm really excited about it. And uh, if you want to look at my face while I ramble about astrology and tarot and such, then uh, I'm on YouTube now. Nice. And you're obviously going to put the link to that in the show notes. Yep. And I'm just going to say that if you promise to like show a cat, I, you know, I think that people would go watch you, not just for the astrology, but for the cats. I'm just saying. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't had the cats in the videos so far, just because um, for sound purposes, I've been closing the door of the room. So yeah. <laughs> and because I get very self I get self-conscious um, if I have the door open that, I don't know, like, I know that my husband's upstairs for me right now and he can hear me talk. And I know that even with the door closed with the room I record my, my videos in that he can hear what I'm saying. But I get weirdly even more self-conscious stage Friday if like the door is open or if like somebody's watching me do it. So I've been closing the door. <clears throat> I've also noticed that I get a fun... Uh, stress reaction, I get stress hives on my neck. So that's something <laughs> that I'm, I'm working on. They're like, oh, I have this like, you know, really like physically manifested performance anxiety um, that if you watch my videos, you can see too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a Pisces. You know, it's actually very funny to our listeners who, you know, haven't met us. We like neither of us actually like speaking in public. So, you know, why are we doing a podcast? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and that's actually the other thing. Um, it will, this podcast episode will come out after I release the video, but for people who know me in person or um, know on a store in Salem, last fall I had been doing a series of moon meditations, um, mostly at the new moons, sometimes at the full moons as well, but I'm going to be making video recordings of them now. And so the first one will be out for the new moon in Libra, which will be just, you know, a few days before this podcast comes out, but I'll be doing those as well. So nice. trying to, I'm trying to incorporate some of the stuff that uh, I was doing live in your store. So. Yeah. Awesome. I have to say, I'm definitely enjoying getting online more and connecting with more people, but anyway, well, folks, uh, our topic for today is weather magic because we got an email from a listener with a question and Becca, are you going to read it for us? Sure. So the email was from Sarah and she says that she is, she lives in Massachusetts and we are experiencing drought in Massachusetts. Um, pretty much the entire state is. And um, where she lives, she has a well for water. 
you know, she says it's been really challenging this summer with very little rain. I am a strong believer in conserving resources, but as a mom of three children, I still need to flush toilets, wash hands, clean dishes and clothes. Is there a direction you could point me to to help with our water or a book or author you recommend? Any advice you can give me would be greatly appreciated. So yeah, we thought that we could just talk about that for this episode because I think there's both conservation things that can be done and there's weather magic things that can be done. And um, as we've said in the past, magic works best when you also do the practical things. Yes, thank you. I was gonna reiterate that point too. You know, we talk a lot about the importance of context and the idea that, you know, the line between what's sacred and what's not is very, very blurry. And we can't, you know, only be trying to work, you know, magic kind of in seclusion, you know, in front of our little altar and not putting in effort in the physical world that we occupy to make a difference, right? Magic has to be done in both the physical and the spiritual realms. Right. And I think that one of the things, you know, talking about the, the conservation aspect and the well water aspect, the, the part of Massachusetts that Sarah lives in is very close to the part of Massachusetts that I grew up in. And um, my family also has a well that we have the water on where um, we're too far away from the town center to, to have town water or sewer. So my mom has a well and a septic system and everything is very self-contained. And one of the, this isn't really a conservation thing, but one of the things I find interesting is that it depends on what type of well you have. So at my mom's house, there's a hand dug well from about 1860 and it's never gone dry. Their next door neighbors, which has a machine drilled well, which is much deeper and was put in in the 1970s, goes dry about once a summer. And, um, and, and it's just, it's very interesting that like the water tables or however the wells are built somehow are much less deep well is hitting a much better water table than the one that goes deeper. So I think that it's interesting that the, the older wells sometimes are working better. You know, I'm going to say this with zero knowledge of how wells are built, but I'm inclined to say that our ancestors had a better relationship with the earth than we do. And so they were probably more in tune with what actually should be done there. Right. Because, you know, this is something that I'm going to get into more uh, later in this episode, but that idea of, you know, we, we are in a place where we are trying to use technology to kind of overpower nature and we've forgotten to kind of try and coexist with it. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes works better. You know, you can do something that has more efficient results, but that's less invasive like you know a well that's not as deep right and so i think like just to start off with some kind of general things that i grew up with with because my mom is very much into conservation you know when she washes dishes she washes them into a pan of it's to collect the water that she washes the dishes in and she brings it out and she dumps it in her garden so she has this like very primitive gray water collection which is like a bucket in her sink that she washes the dishes that she you know that she washes the dishes in and rinses the dishes over that she then dumps outside she doesn't let it go down the drain you know don't flush the toilet unless there's something solid in there or you know it's a dark pea color um you know these are all the rules that we kind of grew up with that um just living on the well water it wasn't even the conservation of the well but it was just if you use too much water the septic tank would overflow as well but you know there was a septic tank and there was also what's called the dry well which is where um 
the showers would drain to and where the um, like the washing machine and stuff would drain to. And that was for the gray water and that would frequently flood and our backyard would be damp. So we had to be careful about using water because of the wastewater, not just wasting water, which I wasn't planning on making a pun there, but sort of I did. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, so uh, I think I've mentioned before on the podcast that my background, you know, before running a shop in Salem was in architecture. And one of the things that I was very interested in was, you know, sustainable architecture and, you know, lead accreditation, which has to do with energy efficiency and design. And, you know, you mentioned gray water and not necessarily everyone knows what that means. Gray water is basically water that you collect to use, you know, in the home or in buildings that is not treated. So it's not potable water. Right. So it would be like collecting rainwater and using that to flush your toilets or, you know, collecting water that you've just washed something in and reusing that. And so, you know, just from a conservation standpoint, flushing is one of the things that uses the most amount of water unnecessarily. And that can be done with gray water. And so, you know, there's just kind of a point where you have to decide, you know, if you're going to be a witch and you're going to try and minimize your footprint as much as possible you can actually make changes to your home to help you, you know, like it's not just doing magic in isolation. So if you, uh, you know, change your plumbing system to collect gray water for flushing, that'll make make a big difference, but also dual flush toilets, uh, you know, those toilets where you can press one button if you just have liquid waste or, you know, you press both buttons to, you know, for solid waste that will cut down on, you know, gallons and gallons and gallons of water. Mm-hmm. And And there's also things like composting toilets, which I don't know if building codes allow. I know they're used a lot in the RVs. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants one of those in their house. (laughs) Like, you know, I I love the environment, but I do not want to live with a composting toilet. But, you know, collecting gray water is really easy. Like, just have, you know, like collection tanks on your property if you have the room for it. And that can be something that can be used to flush. Uh, You know, even if you're just carrying, like, buckets of, like, rainwater upstairs and after you flush, you just dump it into the tank so it doesn't fill up with, okay, you know, clean water. You know, like there's small things that you can do. And of course that addresses how to conserve water if rain is happening. It doesn't address though, what do you do if rain's not happening? And that's, I guess we're gonna get into the, right. <laughs> you know, more spiritual side of the discussion. Right, and I think, so I will say that when it has rained this summer, I have collected small amounts of it for use in magic because most most weather magic is some sort of sympathetic magic. And for no, people not familiar with the term, sympathetic magic is when you do something to something so that something similar will happen to something else bigger. And so, you know, using rain in a small amount to produce rain in a larger amount um, is, you know, one method of that. Um, and so I do, you know, I have about a quart of rainwater in my kitchen and I do, I physically strain it with a coffee filter and then I boil it before I put it in the bottle. Cause it'll get nasty fast if you don't boil it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sorry, but this reminds me of a meme that I saw because we are in a drought and there was, I think it was actually in our like local witchy shit posting group mm-hmm. where someone was like, you know, looking up rain making spells and the first ingredient is always rain. It's like. If I had rain, I wouldn't be trying to do this spell. <laughs> right. So you have to plan ahead. And it, honestly, you don't need rainwater to do a lot of the things that require water. Any sort of water will do. But if there is, you know, there is a good symbolism. I'm not sure what the word I'm using, but. All right, it's the sympathetic yeah. magic, right? It's yeah. the most similar thing. Right. 
So, yeah, so um, I've been doing research about different rainmaking rituals around the world. A lot of them are, and I know that you've also uh, doing reading up on some shamanic rituals. And one of the things that I've noticed is one, a lot of rainmaking rituals are group rituals. Mm-hmm. They are community events. And two, that there's usually something that represents rain in them. Then this goes, you know, there's every culture has a rainmaking ritual and at their basis, they're very similar. I think that the the outer trappings are very different depending on culture, but at the base, there's something that sounds like rain, like a rattle, or that sounds like thunder, like a drum or dancing feet. Um, there's using the colors blue or green, using plant matter because that's what you're trying to grow. And also there's just like physical water. Um, there's, you know, so I yeah. think that those, some combination of those elements can be found wherever in the world you're looking at cultures. You know, so that's interesting because, you know, you just said every culture has rainmaking. And the thing is, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm starting to get the feeling that that's not true. And I'm mm -hmm. basing this on, uh, you know, I was talking to my partner who knows a lot about rune magic, you know, and has a ton of knowledge about rune mm -hmm. vines and rune staves and Elder Futhark. And generally, like, if I'm trying to do any sort of, like, you know, rune magic or talisman magic, I'm like, hey, do you know off the top of your head of a rune vine for blah? And I asked him about if he knew of any rune staves for rainmaking. And his answer was like, no, like never heard of that. And we started talking about the idea that, you know, Vikings weren't exactly lacking in rainy weather. And so there was never a need for that, right? Because mm -hmm. we talk a lot about how, uh, you know, magic and ritual and ceremony is contextual, right? And so if there was never a need for that ritual, in that right. space it probably doesn't exist so i don't i don't have a definitive answer um but that's a thing that i've now decided i need to research i'm wondering if there are more if um if there are other rituals for controlling the rain when it's coming too much because i know a lot of um spell work that there is to bring more rain when there's not enough and there's to make the damn rain stop when when it just won't stop because flooding of course is a big problem in a lot of places right and you know so I'm wondering if that might be an issue because yeah, I guess Northern Europe, not there's not a lot of need for calling the rain. That it's you know traditionally it's been pretty pretty right. rainy in in Northern Europe. There are a lot in in Southern Europe. There are a lot of rainmaking um, traditions. A lot of them that I've found in my research are actually in um, that are still like happening in in folk cultures um, right now are more in. Um, in like the Balkans, um, so like Southeastern Europe. So, you know, the Croatia and Macedonia and places like that where um, they still have folk customs and folk dances based yeah. around the rain customs. Well, so before we get into, you know, some specific examples about ceremonies and rituals, I actually wanted to talk about the book that I was taking a look at uh, as we were preparing for this episode because it provides a really interesting framework for how to think about, you know, like the work of weather modification. And the book is called Weather Shamanism, and it's by Nan Moss with David Corbin. Uh, Nan Moss is part of the Foundation for Shamanic Studies founded by Michael Harner, and um, I have never taken a weather shamanism class from her specifically, but I did take a couple of other classes in person. That's where I got the book. And, you know, it's about the spiritual dimension of weather, 
So in this book, Nan proposes a sort of framework for thinking about weather working. And there's, you know, three kinds of weather working as far as broad categories, and they they range on a scale from, you know, most heart-centered to least heart-centered. And the least heart-centered is weather modification, right? That's like aggressive, wanting to modify the weather, and it's done from a place of desired goals, and there's sort of no spiritual element to it. Uh, like, for example, you know, like in the 1800s, you know, in the U.S., they would burn large swaths of forest to try and, you know, ward away the rain. And then in the 60s and 70s, they were seeding clouds during the Vietnam War to try and make the monsoon season worse so that it would flood the Ho Chi Minh Trail and, you know, thwart their war efforts. And, you know, that's something where we're using, you know, science to interfere with weather to try and get results and there's really you know there's no you can't claim that there's any spiritual component to that kind of working right and that they qualify as weather modification and then one step closer to heart-centered is weather working where you're acknowledging the spiritual side of it um, but you're still trying to kind of exert some control right such as as you're saying trying to scare away the rain you know there are indigenous groups that would like you know uh, shake their spears at oncoming storms and attack them physically as if they were an enemy and so you know weather working has that spiritual component but it can you know tend to, towards being more heart-centered or less heart-centered and then at the center of that like the most heart-centered way of interacting with you know weather and weather spirits is weather dancing and that's about creating you know a relationship with the spirits of weather and you know having like a respectful interaction with them as opposed to one of you know trying to have power over a lot of the folk rituals that i have seen in my research like i said the ones in um in the balkan region of europe and also you can see this in mayan traditions as well um so like really kind of all over the place um and i think also some in um southeast asia have similar things that basically either a person dressed up as a deity who brings rain or a statue of that deity is made wet. So either like in the Balkans, they will dress a small child up as this deity, usually a girl, and she will go house to house and at every house they throw water at her. And, and <laughs> there's a specific song that she sings and you know, whether they throw a bucket of water at her or they sprinkle her, it depends on the culture. But, and you know, and then they usually go to some sort of um, sacred spring or sacred river um, in that town. In what I've seen from Mayan traditions that are still somewhat practiced in, in those regions today and also in Southeast Asia, they'll have a statue and sometimes they just put the statue out in the sun to say like can you like we're taking you out of the temple so that you can see how hot and dry it is out here um, oh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> and um the second step is to pour water on the statue to kind of mm -hmm. remind it so you know so those are um that's kind of from three different very different areas of the world this kind of idea of something that represents the deity and you make it wet <laughs> so that's but it's also yeah. you know it's a very community oriented activity it's not something that someone it's not personal magic that you would necessarily do 
Although you certainly could if you had, you know, a personal shrine and you wanted to take your personal weather god. There's also like, you know, bringing your, your gods to the river to wash them. Um, and I will say that a lot of places don't, when they do these, when they still do these things now as folk customs, they don't necessarily do them because they are in a drought. There's usually some sort of ritual that happens every year during the traditional dry season that this is just a holiday. That that's the, you know, that's how it's, it, it works now in a lot of um, areas that, you know, it's not um, necessarily part of their religion anymore. It's a folk custom that it's a, it's a cultural thing now. Uh, well, I, I actually hadn't heard about the, like the statues before. That's really interesting, but it made me think of just the idea of using kind of a sacred object that is linked to rainmaking specifically. Um, in Nan Moss's book, there's actually, you know, there's several stories of, you know, different indigenous tribes and examples, but one that I enjoyed was about the Yurok tribe in Northern California. Uh, they used to have a rainstone that helped with weather working. And at some point, you know, they decided to bury it because it was too powerful. And in 1959, a road crew accidentally, you know, dug it up. And the next day they got five inches of rain. And then they accidentally dug it up again in 1966 and there were floods. And so that's yeah. always, you know, interesting to hear about. Yeah, it's, it's, it reminds me of, was it, is it Iceland or Ireland? I forgot who was telling the story. That's just like, you know, some road crew accidentally moved the big rock and the city government was like, no, you need to put the big rock back. The fairies <laughs> have that big rock and it'll, there'll be problems if that rock is moved. Put it back. <laughs> the road needs to go around it. That's fine. The road is going to be very curvy right there. The road, that rock needs to be returned. <laughs> like, you know, so... <laughs> You know, this is that reminds me of an interesting aside that I was thinking about the other day for who knows what reason, but that, uh, you know, the Romans very much believe in making their roads straight. Like mm -hmm. they would dig through anything, demolish anything because they did not want to curve around it. And it just made me think, like, how many fairies did they piss off? <laughs> well, you know, the Romans didn't stay in England very long and they never made it to Scotland or Ireland. So <laughs> maybe there was some pushback. Wouldn't surprise me. But, um, you know, one of the things that I did want to address as well in this episode, uh, you know, before we get deeper into this, is, you know, what happens when we think about, you know, the science of weather versus the, the, the magic of weather and where do they kind of come together. And one thing that we've already started talking about in the podcast, and I know that I talked about it a lot last time, is the idea of, you know, it's not disagreeing with science, but understanding that Western science is a perspective, a very well-researched one with a lot of very, very good, you know, very important foundations, but there is still, you know, the bias of uh, Western mentality and Western science, right? And the assumption that Western science is more evolved or better than, you know, Eastern perspectives or any other cultural perspective. Um, and so, you know, I was trying to sort of do some research and, on weather shamanism and, you know, what are the ideas around that? And the idea is that, you know, the, the science of weather, you know, it's true, it's accurate, like these things are happening and they have causes, but it's not the entire story. You know, what we're seeing is the physical manifestation of this, right, what exists in middle world, and we're discounting the spiritual dimension and that there are weather spirits that are working behind that, that, you know, we have relationships with whether we recognize it or not. And as 
you know, people inhabiting this earth, we are interacting with them. And so, you know, the science behind it absolutely, you know, is a thing and is real, but there is, there's that extra spiritual layer to it. And that's where, you know, whether working on a spiritual dimension comes in. I think one of the things that, that I thought was interesting when looking through the information um, preparing for this episode is that there are, and I don't really have examples of these two different things, but there are two different ways that um, people talk about rain magic um, and calling the rains, that there are some people who call clouds and there's, there, there's the calling of the clouds and there's call and there's unlocking clouds. And I know that, you know, just here in our climate, there were some times this summer that we were predicted to have rain. It got real dark. I was sure it was gonna rain. It never rained. The clouds stayed locked up. They didn't, you know, they didn't give us the water. So I think that there's, you know, talking about like, you know, the scientific dimension of it and how, you know, there are ways things work. In some cases, the scientific dimension is just like, well, the weather report said that there was a 90% chance that it was going to rain. I saw the clouds. They came right over me. Nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And in that case, that's where like the unlocking of the rain magic would come in rather than calling the rain clouds on a cloudless day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one of the practices that a lot of tribes used was if they saw the clouds and it wasn't raining is that they would shoot arrows to, you know, pierce them, to see Mm. them. Right. To, you know, unlock that. Yeah, there's, uh, it's just interesting, like, you know, to think about that, you know, how much water is in the clouds, and it's just kind of, you know, there's oceans of water floating up there as clouds. And, um, and I think, you know, one of the earlier episodes that we did, we talked about how going to, you know, doing the practical thing to make magic happen, like, if you want to be an actress, sure, you do a spell, but also, you know, move to LA or New York. Um, and I think there's definitely, it's easier to make a rain cloud open up than to call a rain cloud and also make it open up. So I think, you know, there's different techniques and there's, you know, there's different um, rituals, but I think that, you know, if there are clouds to start with, then, you know, that's a head start. But, you know, calling clouds is a thing too. Mm-hmm. There's actually a story from uh, Sandra Ingerman. Um, about a retreat that she was running and it was specifically I think on you know fire fire magic or fire ceremony Uh, but she was somewhere that had been in a drought and you know they they moved the ceremony indoors they were going to use a a fireplace but even then she was worried about you know sparks and having any sort of negative impact so uh, she journeyed and you know said you know I need a clear sign and said if you can give me 30 seconds of rain by 4 p.m. I'll take that as a blessing to do the ceremony. If not, the ceremony's off. And at exactly 4 p.m., like clouds appeared, it rained for 30 seconds and they cleared out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but also Sandra Ingerman is someone who has dedicated her life to shamanic practice. And, you know, she is far more connected to weather spirit than I know I am. Mm -hmm. So that's not to say that like, you know, anybody can be doing this, but if you are cultivating that depth of relationship, then yeah, it's possible. Yeah. And I think one of the other things to think about is whenever you hear about people doing traditional rain magic, it's always for a severe drought. It's like, you know, 
people are dying of drought, animals are dying of drought, crops are drying, you know, dying of drought. It's not that it hasn't rained in a week. That's, you know, that's what a lot of these traditional ceremonies are for. It's not because we're a little bit light on rain right now. It's that things are seriously bad. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that is, is something to think about, that it's not something that you can't just control the weather all the time. You can't, you know, no one, especially, you know, with global warming, climate change, things are becoming more and more chaotic. The weather is too big to just, you know, no matter how in touch with you, anything you are, that you can't always control the weather. So holding back those magics until they're kind of desperately needed is traditional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one approach that I've taken with with storms and now i'm wondering if you know why not take a similar approach with you know the opposite you know droughts is i learned to you know if there's a big storm coming and we're worried about damages to you know go out and you know make an offering to you know the spirits of the storm but say you know i understand that you need to come and you need to do this and you know i just ask that you remember that we're here you know, we're small, and if you can, you know, stay up high or stay off the coast and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like give us some protection. And, you know, that's not a thing where I'm trying to control or say don't come with this, but just like, you know, do this. But if you can, please do it in a way that's not, you know, harmful to us. Right. And so, you know, I wonder what that conversation would look like if you're talking to the opposite, right? The spirit of drought to say, can you be gentler with us? Right. I think that, you know, there are some modern personal spell work things that people do. I know just like pouring water into a bowl and kind of stirring it while asking for rain um, is uh, one of the more popular methods. Like I said, I keep rainwater for use. Um, I haven't used it very much, even though it's been so dry this summer. I haven't really used this technique this summer, but you know, I'll use that rainwater and pour a small amount out and, you know, say prayers over it and then pour it on a houseplant or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of like, again, the sympathetic magic of the rain on a plant to, you know, that's, so I know that there are kind of like, um, you know, modern witchy spell work things that there's a bunch of them if you look them up online, but how, I think some of them vastly overstate their, their power. well yeah one thing that we haven't talked about yet that we you know do need to talk about is you know group rain magic group Mm -hmm. you know rain working and weather modification uh and you know the first one that comes to mind of course is rain dancing right indigenous rain dances Mm -hmm. and you know i'm going to say a thing that i say over and over again and actually i have some people you know complaining in my book review about this that i always bring up cultural appropriation and I am going to say that again because it's still true, you know, don't just go find one and, you know, copy it and try it. And, you know, it's not just because of the cultural appropriation, which, you know, is a good enough reason. But one thing that I always try and stress is that, you know, ceremony and magic works in context. So, you know, I, I'm originally from Brazil and I was looking up indigenous uh, raid making practices in Brazil. And there are some similarities to, you know, North American indigenous practices as well, but they're different because they are on different land and they're speaking to different spirits. 
And so it doesn't make sense to take, you know, a ceremony that was created for one land and then just plop it in another and think that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, like the thing that is probably going to be the most effective for your land is if there was a indigenous tribe near you and they had, you know, rain magic and rain dance. That's probably going to be the thing that most accurately speaks to the land that you're on. Right. I still I still wouldn't personally perform a Wampanoag rain dance. No, no, no. I'm not. <laughs> um, I think per- if I was going to dance for the rain, I would make something up. Right. I, like, you know, I would, I, I've mentioned this before, um, I do incorporate a lot of sort of like spontaneous interpretive dance into my rituals. So I think that if I was going to do a rain dance, I would just, I would personally dance for the rain. I wouldn't try to do someone else's dance that I have no cultural attachment to. Right. And that gets to that sort of, you know, three levels of weather modification. And that is the most heart-centered approach, right? Where you're doing the weather dancing and you're the one who's developing the dance and the relationship there. And so honestly, you know, again, a thing I say a lot is that shamanism is about direct revelation. You have to develop your relationship with, you know, land and spirit. It's not about someone else coming and telling you what to do. So like that is going to be the best, you know, rainmaking magic and ceremony is the one that you develop. You know, if you develop a dance and a song and a ritual that is about the land that you're on and you're talking to that land, that's going to give you the best results. Right. And I think, you know, you're talking about like, you know, group things and community efforts. It is also traditional to pay weather magicians to come to your community and do the rituals. Like that's something that, that, I mean, that's, it's done a lot in um, in African cultures where there's like a, a specific person or persons who are known to be very good at weather magic and like their job is to travel around to where they need to be and do the rituals for people because there are some people who are just better at it than other people. And so just like you would call someone who's good at, using, at seeing ghosts and dealing with ghosts to exercise a troublesome spirit from your house, you can find someone who's good at weather magic and have them come and, you know, help with the, the rain issue. Like, that's, that's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, that had never occurred to me, but that makes sense. You know, like you call someone to do a cleansing, you call someone to do, you know, whatever else they're good at. So why not weather magic? Right. Like you don't have to do everything yourself. You can look out in your community and you're saying like, you know, if, if there are, Native American tribes in your area that perform these ceremonies. If you rent out a space, they might be up up for coming and doing a rain dance for you. I don't know. You can ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Um, it might be a way to support them during, you know, the pandemic. I mean, who knows? Right. I do have one um, old magic thing that I wanted to bring up. um, And this is from the book of Abramelin which is a um, 15th century Jewish grimoire. And people are probably familiar with it. There's a lot that comes from this that was used by Western ceremonial magic that is, and I'm reading from the recent Den translation. And so this book, it's split up into four parts. There's one that's just like a story about Abraham von Worm um, who is a German Jew who is looking for real magic. And so he 
it's basically an autobiography about how he goes to all these places in Europe and he goes to Egypt and he goes to all these places until he finally finds the, this good magic that works for him. So that's one section. Another section is this actual ritual that takes 18 months to do, although there's shorter versions that have been made from it. And then there's two sections that are spell works. And so I'm reading from book two, and there are two spells called that a long drought does not harm your fields. And again, a long drought. So short droughts don't do magic for it. That's sort of <laughs> baked into a lot of these things. And so both of them are the same, but they have different prayers that you write. Okay, so it says, take bricks of clay equal to the number of your fields. Wash the bricks before sunrise with running water. Take a twig of olive or almond, dip it into good olive or almond oil and write on the bricks. Besmoke them and bury them amidst the field just before sunrise. It may not rain immediately, but the night dew will bring the blessings of Adonai. Do exactly the same thing again the following day, but bury the stones directly after sunset. So you have on one day, you put them on, the, on sunrise, then a full 24 hours passes, and then it, it actually almost 48 hours passes because you, um, it's 36, I'm bad at math. So, <laughs> um, but so the sunrise of one day, the next night goes through, the next day goes through, and after sunset, you do it the second time. And so there's two different prayers. The first one says the words are, the blessings of Adonai, the proof of his mercy for your goodness, is, a, is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it spreads. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the evening and former rain that was has wet the earth. And the second one is shorter, and it says the words, Adonai, the proof of your grace and loyalty shall be like the morning cloud full of dew, and like the dew that spreads in the morning. So again, these are just, they're pretty basic prayers asking for, for rain. And in this translation, Adonai is how they are um, translating the name of God. So, um, so yeah, so it's very, it's again, it's that sympathetic, you take bricks, as many bricks as you have fields, you wet them with water, you write this prayer on it that you want water for your fields, and then you bury them in the field. So it goes back to, you know, it's not a physical representation of a deity, these bricks. I mean, maybe it was at some point, and they became square bricks, but it, it goes back to that very sympathetic magic of you take a dry thing and you make it wet and you know to call in the rain and i thought that that was that was interesting that they're it's very it's not a community rain dance it's not a community ritual it's just one person with a farm who is asking their deity to help with the rains yeah i mean i was also looking at of course uh, you know, sort of Christian sympathetic magic, and I don't know how to pronounce the saint's name, I will own up to it, but apparently there is a patron saint of weather, and he also helps with toothaches, by the way. Uh, his name is Saint Medardus. And I don't know that one. I, I don't know him either, and if you know how to pronounce his name, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, but they say he was once sheltered from rain by an eagle who hovered over him when he was a child. Okay. So that's who you pray to for for rain. That sounds um, like one of those stories that did not st start off as an actual human being, but was a small god of some small area that got incorporated as a saint. 
I have no idea. Uh, well, apparently he was born around 456 in Picardy, and his father was of noble Frankish origin. So there you go. There's a saint but... for everything. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I... Yeah, there's some plaza in Italy, I think, that has all the saints, you know, lined up on columns, and it's, yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I think is worth talking about, in, you know, when we're talking about whether magic is, you know, whether shamanism kind of as a whole, and what that really means, right? Because sort of in every sort of ritual and step in your magical practice, right, you can treat something as kind of like a little instance of something that you do you know when it's convenient or it can be something that really informs like your your bigger practice right so you can say oh you know we're struggling with rain or there's too much rain i'm going to do something for this and you know just sort of dealing with like the goal-oriented side of it but if we want to be more heart-centered and you're trying to really uh you know have a more harmonious relationship with your surroundings that's where weather shamanism comes in and weather really does have that spiritual dimension right and there's a lot of emotion that is behind that right and it's not just our personal emotions but right the emotions of humanity as a whole right uh, like if we look at what the world is doing on so many levels right where everything is in so much turmoil you sort of have to realize that you know global warming and sort of just the kind of regression of humanity right are kind of going hand in hand and um in the weather shamanism book that I mentioned, uh, David uh, Corbin mentions one of his teachers, and one of his teachers is quoted as saying that weather is power taking on the cloak of elements available to it. You know, we've talked before about, you know, ways to incorporate, you know, magic into sort of your everyday life with small things, and that idea that Becca brings up of like, you know, there's just one knife that you use, and you use it to cut your sacred herbs, and you also use it for cooking. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the idea of social responsibility, right, that comes along with being a witch or, you know, or any sort of magical practitioner. So if, if you are interested, right, in sort of, you know, taking on that kind of shamanic role of being a steward for the earth and being uh, sort of that, you know, that activist that's trying to bring harmony between, the, you know, the material plane and the spiritual plane, like, you know, weather shamanism is a place where you can do that too, because there are a lot of very upset weather spirits with the world right now. And so what can you do sort of from an energetic perspective to start trying to balance that out? Yeah. And I think, I know this is fiction and I also know a lot of people have watched it. So the Witcher on Netflix that everyone was watching earlier this year. Um, okay. I love The Witcher. <laughs> but the thing I want to say about they talk about magic in it and that magic is all magic is chaos. And I I know it's fiction, but I really like that idea that and especially like you know I've mentioned before like I have a Hellenic pagan path that I follow, and there's this idea that the beginning of the universe was chaos. And the idea that magic is chaos and weather is chaos like you know i mean weather predictions are use chaos theory to make the weather reports and you know i think one of the things about climate change and everything that's happening is that those forces of chaos they're making the planet uninhabitable for us they're not necessarily like 
the planet won't necessarily be destroyed, but like, we'll all be dead. Right. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, negotiating with that and trying to, you know, convince those, as you said, very angry weather spirits, but trying to convince them that maybe they don't want us to be dead. <laughs> right. Maybe we yeah. have something to offer still. <laughs> Right. I mean, of course, that our view is so, so very egocentric. I mean, I think about every end of the world movie, right? And, you know, you'll think of these scenes of they go back to an abandoned city and nature has taken over and they're like, ah, oh, everything's destroyed. And I'm like, no, nature's reclaiming. Mm -hmm. You know, the world is over for humans because we screwed it up, but nature is still there and it's going to take it back. And so, right, how egocentric is that perspective that, you know, the world is over just because we don't have what we wanted anymore and we're completely failing to see how the rest of the world is thriving because we're not destroying it anymore right yeah i, I don't know it's uh there's a lot of people who only care about themselves and only care about money i don't know i don't know why they care about so much money they seem to hate their kids so <laughs> right <laughs> but you know but that's you know, as my one of my other teachers, Grace, would always say, and I think she heard this from someone else, and I wish I could remember, you know, the proper, like, attribution, but, you know, we are the ones that we've been waiting for. Like, the time to make a difference is right now. You know, we are already at a point of irreversible damage to the planet, and we need to stop. And so, you know, if you are noticing that you're being impacted by droughts and this and that, and, you know, you're interested in doing something about it in addition to of course you know voting for environmentally sound policies you know maybe now is the time to develop a practice of you know weather shamanism and whatever way that looks like to you so that you're trying to at least make a dent in addressing the problem on a bigger scale right because i think the more people who are doing these interactions the you know the more even if we're not you know, working together, even if we don't know that we're all working for the same thing, the more people working towards the same goals will bring us to those goals faster. And that works both for magical workings and for the physical things in the real world, um, whether it's our personal changes or it is, you know, lobbying for changes in society that make the big destructive things that corporations and the military do you know, to, re to restrain them. Because, you know, I mean, the US military is a huge polluter, as opposed like all the other things that, you know, I'm not a fan of with the military. But it's, it's a it's a huge, it's a huge polluter. It's a huge source of emissions. And, you know, and industry, I mean, people talked about when the pandemic started, and everything got locked down, and like, oh, the planes aren't flying, no one's driving anywhere, you know, it's going to have this huge, um, you know, environmentally positive impact. And we cut emissions by maybe 2% by like all of the humans in the planet stopping travel, like, and like all these things that we've been told are so bad for the planet, our cars, our airplanes, all of this, that like, oh, it's so terrible. Well, we all stop that for like three months and we cut emissions by about 2% because industry and military and like that all still kept going. And that's like, that's the problem. Like we can't just, it's important for us to make personal changes, but assuming that we are the, the, the personal problem is just letting the actual like big, 
like you know corporate um polluters off the hook right but we do need to do both right Right. because people also use this argument to say well you know me using plastic bags is not going to make a difference because industry is a big polluter like yes industry is a big polluter but you know, we should also do our part. You know, right. Not, no, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not yeah. saying that we're off the hook. I'm just saying that, you know, they're don't just worry about your own personal things. It's actually more important to, you know, write letters or emails or whatever to legislatures and try to get environmental laws changed so that like some of these bigger pollution issues um, can mm-hmm. be restrained somehow. But, yeah, I do think that if everyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, starts taking an interest in developing an energetic relationship with the land that they're on, we can really start to make a difference. So, you know, Sarah, hopefully you're listening to this episode too. Uh, you know, the best thing that you can do is try and have a conversation with the land that you live on, whether through, you know, shamanic journeying or, uh, you know, whatever sort of meditation or visualization you can do, but, you know, at least definitely put your bare, you know, hands on that land and talk to it and say, you know, what can I do to help? What can I do to support you? You know, what offerings can you make? Because it does make a difference. Uh, you, you know, it, I understand that sometimes when we say these things, they sound a little loony, but if you just go out and you clap for the land, like that's literally an energy exchange, right? Like you're, you're moving energy, you're creating sound, you're generating, you know, energy and wavelength. And that does make a difference. And it's such a small thing, but all those small things are going to add up. And if everyone is doing a little bit, every little bit helps, you know, do that. And then also, you know, conserve water and also vote. And maybe we can, (laughs) start to make a dent in the problem yeah and i think you know to reiterate you know one of one of sarah's questions was like you know she has kids and she needs to wash their hands and so you know what i was saying about my mom with the dishes you can do the same thing with your sink in the bathroom to put some sort of bowl in the sink and this is assuming that you have land to that needs water Um, but you know if you're growing plants outside or whatever you know put a bowl in the sink and when you wash your hands or the kids wash their hands and it collects in that bowl and then when it gets full you bring it outside and you dump it on your garden and that means that you don't need to use the clean water out of your hose on your garden Mm -hmm. so that's you know if if you're feeling like you're you're wasting a lot of water on on that sort of thing you know you can as you said you can modify your house to physically to collect the gray water from things like that but you can also just you know physically collect them in a bucket Mm mm-hmm well, folks, thank you for uh, joining us on this rambling journey about weather magic. Uh, we, <laughs> Sarah, we hope we've given you some tips, but we love getting questions from you folks over email. Uh, please feel free to email us if you have questions at askawitch at witchcitywitches.com. Be sure to check out Becca's new YouTube channel, This Magic House. Uh, we are both still available for tarot readings, which you can book online. There's a link to that at witchcitywitches.com. And thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening, everyone. And please remember to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform uh, so that other people can find us more easily. Thank you.